some people can come with you on this journey and some people cannot. And if you cannot come with us, that's okay. Please get off the train. Sharon Price John is an innovative leader and is currently the president and CEO of Build a Bear Workshop. With decades of experience in marketing, product development, and change management, Sharon has worked on brands and businesses like Hasbro and Mattel. Just like customers put a heart in every bear, Sharon pours her heart into everything that she does, including writing her book, Stories and Hearts. And she revitalized the Build-A-Bear brand in 2020, making 21 and 2022 the most profitable years for her company. Get ready to hear all about her journey taking the beloved toy company to new heights. Coming up, how Sharon's past roles prepared her for her current role as CEO. You'll hear about Sharon's values and how they shape how she leads. Sharon shares her tips on how to get through adversity. And finally, how Sharon led her team through 2020 and beyond. This is the Entrepreneurista Podcast, presented by Socialfly. It's the best business meeting you'll ever have with must-hear real-life looks at how leading women in business are getting it done. And what it takes to build and grow a successful company. It's beyond the gram. With no filters. No limits. And plenty of surprises. Sharon, we are so thrilled to sit down with you today and hear all about your entrepreneurista journey and story. You have such an incredible background and have worked for some of the most iconic brands that we know and now including Build-A-Bear. But before you started at Build-A-Bear, what was your career journey like? Did you grow up always knowing that you wanted to run these big iconic brands one day? Of course not. (laughs) I mean, I don't think that was in my wheelhouse. I don't think that, you know, I would have imagined myself being a business person, much more of a creative soul, definitely in the art world and art, dance, things like that. That's really what I was doing as a kid, but very driven and, you know, knew that I wanted to do something special and college was always on my horizon. But then I loved psychology too, as I started getting older and ended up majoring in college in advertising, but it started out as uh, me being an art and architecture major. And the reason I'm, I'm adding in that psychology piece is I believe that I was drawn toward that marketing and communication side because really, in so many ways, it's a mashup of art and psychology because you're using the spoken word and the visual to try to influence or impact somebody's belief structure. Or get the, you know, and that's kind of what that is. And so I became a student of the psychology of humans, which then helped me be a better leader over time and also came a little bit obsessed with like self-help books and all the, like, almost like using it to, on myself, you know, <laughs> it's like <laughs> doing the analysis on me and trying to, understanding the separation between the who you are deep down, you sort of your brain and your operating structure, like your, and then you could learn to sort of get yourself to be motivated or, or set, how to set goals or how to think about, you know, challenges or how to reset something in your mind that you thought was negative and think about it in this positive way and how that gets you to move forward. And all of that came together to 
I think, uh, impact this trajectory in many more ways than I ever would have dreamed, but uh, ended up being very drawn to kids' businesses after starting in the ad business and then going into the New York agency business and was exposed to the confections piece before I got my MBA. But I love the kids' business. It keeps me young, I hope. (laughs) (laughs) So what exactly was your career path and what led you to Build-A-Bear? So after college, I did work at a small agency in Knoxville, Tennessee, which is where I, I attended. And then I, um, I had set these goals for myself in the spirit of what we were just discussing. I actually created my own set, my values system. I learned about this thing called price values in a marketing class. And the evening after we were studying that, my last name was Price at the time. I'm like, hmm, you know, what are my price values? Why don't I create my own set of values to live my life? If I was a brand, how would I want to think about myself? What, I, what would I want people to say about me years and years from now? And I made these, this value system that was about you know, perseverance and respect and and creativity, you know, like all of these, you know, each each word represented a letter in my name and uh, intelligence and excellence. Those weren't in order, but you get them now. And um, I thought, well, if I'm going to live by these values, what would I be doing? And if I want to be excellent in advertising, what's the Mecca? And so I decided I would try to get a job in New York and knew no one and really didn't know exactly what I was even saying out loud, but, you know, kept sort of focused on that as a dream. And there's certain pivot points, I think, that happen in your life where if you have these dreams and you slowly, you know, you don't do them, you keep talking yourself out of it. I mean, anyone that's that, that wants to embrace some sort of a title called entrepreneurista has probably been down this road of you know, I don't know, maybe this is a crazy idea, maybe it's a great idea. There's usually this tipping point where the pain of not knowing is greater than the pain of trying and failing. And I got to that point. I'm like, oh God, I'm 20, you know, 22, 23. What's the worst thing that could happen? Literally, what's the worst thing that can happen? I go up there, I try to get a job. They say, no, that's the worst. And then I get this out of my way and I just move on with life. It's okay. But I put this whole program together. And this is years ago, guys. So, you know, there's there's no internet. I've literally got to get, you know, like a, you know, an ad age magazine and call people and cold call and literally type letters and use whiteout, you know, <laughs> to get my resume out there. But I, I got 15 interviews in, in one week and I had this objective of getting a, a job at a top 10 agency in a week. Now, I'm not even going to tell you how silly that was, but. I've often said to people that one of the worst things that happens, particularly if you want to be an entrepreneur, is the smarter you get, the more afraid you are because you start to know what the real odds are and then you you just can't move forward. So I think there's something so beautiful in that sort of just open armed, I don't know, youth. And I encourage everyone to hold on to that spirit, but just the the unknowing sort of changed my odds because I didn't know what the odds were and ended up getting 15 interviews set up and a 16th happened on that Friday. It was a second interview. 
and I did get the job of at DDP Needham in their training program. And they offered me the job and um, they're like, you know, be, you know, $24,000 a year, which was, you know, pretty good, but not in New York. But anyway, I'm like 25, you know, <laughs> you got to like, negotiate. Got I, mean, I don't know. I swear, I know. It's just so funny when I look back on her and what she was, must've been thinking, but that set the track for me to kind of uh, be a little, you know, like, like this true, you never know what can happen. What's the worst thing that can happen? That ability to overcome the fear with the trial, like learning that it's okay. You can fail. It's okay. Just get back up. That's not what's going to define you. The not trying is what will also define you, but in the worst way. The failure won't. That's okay. And then I, I ended up being in the Hershey on the Hershey brand and then switched to a new agency and worked as an account supervisor in Snickers, got my MBA at Columbia, then went to Mattel for seven years and worked on Barbie and Disney, a little bit of Paris in there. Um, then uh, ended up working at VTech for a year or so, started my own company with uh, the reinvention of Dawn Dolls, then to Hasbro for seven years, left there as the general manager of the toy, uh, U.S. toy division and the head of the uh, preschool global few years at Stride Ride as the president. And then here I am 10 years at the CEO of Build Bear. There's my resume. Lickety split. It's so incredible all that you've accomplished. You've had such an impressive career path and story. And you you shared a lot just now of, of things that Stephanie and I always say to each other and always say to other entrepreneurs. You know, you miss, what's the quote? You miss 100% of the shots you don't take. And we always say that if you don't ask, you don't get. And it's so true. How did you learn to be that way? Where did that spirit come from? I think some of that was is probably inborn. You do. I came out pretty feisty, according to my parents. <laughs> so, <laughs> my dad named me Short Fuse. Um, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> Apparently a lot of stomping, maybe some hands on my hips on occasion, you know. And but what dad did also teach me, it's okay to have spirit. They didn't try to dismantle the spirit. They didn't call me bossy. They did they never put me in a box. It was more like, okay, this is great. We love that you have an opinion, but you're gonna have to learn to channel. <laughs> You're in much more productive ways. So trying has never been like just leaning in is a real tendency. But, you know, I think that, that sometimes um, the world, whether it's parents or sometimes teachers who I know that they usually have the very best interest at heart. But a lot of times it's those voices that start to dismantle that you're like, oh, I'm supposed to interpret this as, as bad or, oh, if I failed, I'm supposed to never try that again. I mean, it's, it, there are a lot of people around you whose own personal fears or belief structure, it can be debilitating on your early, in your early days. And that's hard. And when you get to be an adult and you start to study some of the psychology behind why people, people who take chances and people who don't take chances, people that learn from failure, people who can't move forward after failure, a lot of that has to do with what they were taught. Now, you, I think also what we learn in psychology is that those things 
and those belief structures inside yourself can be changed. You can't, you should not be using that as an excuse for not moving forward. But I would say that to your question, Courtney, there was a tendency. And then I was fortunate enough to have some people around me that didn't completely dismantle that. And so, and then did a lot of things that I think sports are great for people because you have to learn to pick yourself up and try again. I was, I was a competitive gymnast. So it's, that's all a mind game, you know? So when you're, you know, trying to do a balanced beam routine in the middle of, you know, a big meet, it's all in you. It's all inside of you getting focused and making that happen. But it's, it really is a resiliency that you create over time and learning to redefine failure is not what people think it is. It literally is just a stepping stone. I don't even talk about it in those terms ever. People ask me those questions. What's the, you know, the biggest failure you've ever had? I'm like, doesn't exist because I don't think about it that way. They're all less, it's just another lesson. Sharon, I'm so glad that you shared that. And I actually have a four-year-old little girl. And when you just mentioned how your parents never called you bossy, I am like all about calling that out. Like I hate when I hear parents sharing like, oh, my kid's bossy. It's like, no, your kid is assertive. Like they're taking charge. Like let's make sure we're using the right words with our, our little ones because they truly are the future and they learn from everything that we do and everything that we share. And it really is just so remarkable to hear everything that you're sharing and how you're really tying everything that you've accomplished and done in your life now back to your childhood and how you were how you were raised and how you saw life and, you know, the sports teams that you were a part of and doing gymnastics. Like I just so relate to hearing you share all of this. And it's just, it's so important to share. So we're, we're all aware as we're raising our little ones for sure. Oh yeah. 100% on that bossy thing, because really all it is, is it's a kid with an opinion. And then the irony that, you know, years later, when we're all sitting in a big corporate office or around a conference table, sometimes with a lot of uh, men, and we're afraid to speak as women. And then you wonder why. This isn't a hard thing to figure out. There wasn't a little boy called bossy because he had an opinion. We have to be uber aware of how we're thinking through what we're doing and how we're coaching. And I would you encourage to not, please don't kill the spirit of any, of any child, guy or girl. I have, I have a son and two, and two girls and you, you don't, I, I really worked hard and, you know, he is, was just all energy and people are like, you've got to calm him down. I'm like, do I? And I would ask him like when he would, you know, just be bouncing off the walls. I'm like, all right, that's three trips around the house. You know, <laughs> you literally run around the house three times, but not sit him in the corner for that. Let him burn the energy out. Solve the problem the right way. And I think that it would go a long, a long way for the next generation. Up next, you're about to hear why Sharon joined Build-A-Bear and some of her most notable accomplishments.
When you decided to take the position as CEO of Bilderbear, what made you decide to join the company? And what, looking back on your time there, what are you most proud of? So this particular opportunity came to me at a really interesting moment. We had turned around the Stride Right Children's Group and had learned a lot about vertical retail, which was something that was new to me when I started that company. I'd been in big toy companies and selling to big box retail, but, you know, had not run a retail organization per se. And that happened to be the last tool in the toolbox to make me arguably a viable candidate for the CEO of Build-A-Bear. You know, running a division of a multi-billion dollar company is sometimes a stepping stone to being a CEO. That made sense. All the kids' products, the being a, importing from China, the marketing piece, licensing, running teams, all sorts of functional areas. But that vertical retail was critical. And simultaneously, my father had just recently passed away. And I think that it's all of these moments in your life are are moments of reflection. Sometimes when someone that close to you uh, passes, you do think back on your life and, and think about what you want your, your future to be and what sort of legacy you want to leave. And so I was in a highly contemplative mode and actually had cleaned out my childhood home. And it caused me to think a lot about getting closer to to family, uh, my, my husband's farm, all sorts of things were just swirling around in my mind. And I, I think I had, in some odd way, kind of put the possibility of, I'll consider something if it's right in the universe. And for those of the, you that may have read my book, it's really uncanny how that unfolds time after time after time in the book. So I was open to this and here it comes, something that happens to be toys, kids, a turnaround, retail, like it was just crazy. If that's not meant to be, what is? But it still required a move and a lot of discussion. And one of the things that my husband mentioned to me, he's like, I said, you know, I don't want to upend the family unless, you know, everybody's on board. And we did that. And he said to me in private, he goes, look, you got to do this. We've got to do this. He's like, what, you know, the odds of the exact right thing coming, there just aren't that many CEO roles. They're just still, when you look at it for women, they're just, it's, it's far and few between. And if that's what you want to do, this is the moment. And the brand needed to be turned around and there were a lot of challenges with it, but I really looked at it as one. I know how to do what needs to be done. Doesn't mean I can do it, but I know how to do what needs to be done. Not, nothing about this is fundamentally frightening. Like I have to learn a whole new functional area, but I, they also had plenty of cash. So I'm like, and I have a runway because of the cash flow. And I figured out about how long I had. And then you kind of add that on to... I believed so deeply in the value of this brand and that the emotional connection that Build-A-Bear has made with gener generation of people and the memories that could, that if the infrastructure was there and the business was running uh, much more efficiently, how much we would be able to pivot the company 
to access and monetize the value of that brand in numerous ways beyond vertical retail was the big win. And that's what excited me about it. So, you know, we got in and had to figure out how to become profitable pretty quickly. But I've done that a lot of times. Like I kind of become a turnaround person inside of Hasbro, which was why I was tapped for stride right in the beginning. So that you get in, you get that done, you bring your team, people from your team where you can as soon as you can, and you get down to business on that. But it was the bigger strategy, the where we are now that I was most excited about. Can you take us back to day one on the job? What did you have on your list of all the things that had to be done to be able to turn the company around? And how did you decide where to start first? So I will give you the answer that you're probably not expecting. I mean, clearly, there's a lot of financial levers that you're going to pull under a certain, in a certain situation like that. But the most important thing that I needed to do was get the company to go with me. And when you're taking over from a beloved founder, which is what I did, Maxine Clark, just remarkable woman, and the company is so well regarded, even though it was having financial uh, struggles, but that the people inside the company so connect the founder and the founder spirit to the company itself, you're looked upon with a lot of trepidation. and you can't turn around a company by yourself and you have to get people to come with you. And so one of my top jobs was to express to this organization that, you know, we are the, the spirit and the, the, I would call it the culture of Build-A-Bear is very, very strong and it is filled with heart. What we say from a, to a consumer facing perspective and that our mission is uh, to add a little more heart to life, we, that really is true inside of this company. And it was absolutely critical for me to lay out a plan for this, not just the team, not just my leadership team, but the biggest port, like the thousands of people that are out in the field to understand that my goal was to change the business model, but not to upend the culture. And that I believed that these two things could live together. Like literally, my intention was not to rip the heart out of this company. And right, wrong, or indifferent, a lot of turnaround agents have that reputation. So I needed to come straight out and say that in the most authentic way that I could while showing them a path. And the way that I decided to do that was linked back to what I was just sharing with you. They built this brand. They created this equity, one teddy bear at a time, one heart ceremony at a time. The key was to draw it out in an understandable manner for them to understand that when they, when you create a brand of that type of power, we had not just an opportunity, but an obligation to unleash that, but that would take change in the way we operate. And to get to this value that this organization had envisioned and created, I don't think they understood that they had that permission and latitude that they were as big as they were. But coming from a background where I've seen this kind of, you know, unaided brand awareness or affinity numbers or for almost every major brand in the toy industry, I'm like, guys, I don't even think you know how big this is and how big this could be if we could change the fundamentals of the way we operate. What were some of the changes that you made? Well, we had to, well, first, structure follows strategy. So it was critical to get the company to understand that 
you can only get so big when you're a vertical retail make your own and that we're going to stay, you know, mostly mall based and malls are struggling. So, you know, rethinking the entire construct of where and how you could show up. Build-A-Bear was built on a classic 1990s, early 2000 con- uh, sort of approach to retail where you're just mall based. It's a cookie cutter approach. Every store is basically the same. You're kind of, it's just sort of a machine of rollout and your growth is coming from that rollout more than it's coming from calm. And, but the malls were contracting and traffic was contracting and, you know, the, we had to completely blow that model up and rethink it under uh, those new circumstances of where do families now go for fun and entertainment? How are we going to operate in a digital economy with something that's based on an experience? How are we going to evolve as our consumer base now, those kids that were originally part of the Build-A-Bear brand in the late 90s now have kids that are the right age, right? So we're multi, right, we're multi-generational. How do you take advantage of that? And I've been through this with Transformers with My Little Pony on the reinvention of brands to make them relevant and engaging and important to not only the generation of the kids that are now having kids, but those consumers themselves. And laid, you know, kind of laid all that out. And we had to put all that infrastructure in place um, and bring in new leadership and things like that. But while returning to profitability, also not to just pile on, but in the middle of the retail apocalypse, followed by Brexit, followed by COVID. No problem. Yeah, easy. <laughs> easy peasy. <laughs> well, I do have to share our recent family Build-A-Bear story. Oh, good. That's my favorite part. Build-A-Bear saved the day during our first week of school a few weeks ago. So Molly's in her second year of preschool and she had a really rough first day of school. I took her over to her friend's house down the street thinking like that would help everything. She had a meltdown still at her friend's house, but she saw they both had two unicorn Build-A-Bears and she's like, I want that. And I said, okay. We'll have a good day at school tomorrow. And then while I'm working tomorrow, when you get off school, daddy will take you and you can go to Build-A-Bear. And that's when Coco Beans was born. So Build-A-Bear <laughs> saved, the, saved the day for us a few weeks ago. And she's obsessed, absolutely obsessed. And you are creating these incredible memories. And, you know, I grew up, you know, going to Build-A-Bear and being able, like you said, being able to give these experiences now to, to our little ones is just so, so special. It's magical to be of service. That's kind of a different way to think about it. And that's something that we talk about in, in, in the company. How can we be of service? How can we truly I mean, add a little more heart to life? Every interaction, every engagement, that's making your life a little more heartfelt, literally, both for your daughter as well as yourself and your family and calming all that and maybe even the school teacher. <laughs> so... <laughs> But that's why we exist. And Courtney, back to your question, when I did get up and have this presentation to the team, it was sort of a critical touch point to move forward with the strategy. My turning point question for them was, is the world a better place with or without Build-A-Bear? And I just let it hang. And I asked it again. Nobody said anything. They don't know me well enough to, you know, start blurting out at this point. But I'm like, I'm asking you. I'm at, this is not rhetorical. Is the world a better place with Build-A-Bear or without, you know, what? And they're like, with. I'm like, what? <laughs> they're like, with. I'm like, yes, 
And this is the deal. I'm putting a big strategy out here on how to turn this around. I'm telling you, I'm not going to rip the heart out of this company to the best of my ability. You got to help me with that. But I'm also telling you that if we keep doing what we're doing exactly the way we're doing it, there will be no Build-A-Bear. So change is necessary. And I'm giving you one way to change this company that I have executed very similar things multiple times. There's no guarantees, but this is a path. I'm also telling you, if you have a better idea, I'm all ears. But unless or until there is a better idea, this has to be the, th- the, the path we choose because doing what we're doing is not going to work. And we will be endangering this beloved brand that you built. And the hardest, this is one of the hardest things that leaders have to do is then say the flip side of that. But I felt like that I needed to do it. Um, and I know that when you guys, you know, when your companies grow and when this happens, some people can come with you on this journey and some people cannot. But it was that part of the conversation of, and if you cannot come with us, that's okay. Please get off the train. That slows down change. The questioning, the, well, what if? Well, I knew. Well, and then it turns into a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy on the negative side. Because it's so easy to kind of point fingers at the why something didn't work versus making something work. It's just easy. And then you, you get this body of proof on we shouldn't have done that. We shouldn't have done that. And you have to manage all of that. Again, it comes right back to this idea that we are surrounded by other humans Companies are called organizations because we're all a bunch of organs, you know, organized. It's like it's all one thing. It's just a collection of people. Nothing exists without people. So the management of the psychology of the process is absolutely critical. And I think that it's sometimes wildly understated that your question was a good one. So what did you do? You know, and I could go in and I could walk right through the spreadsheet on what we did, where we, you know, chose to, okay. So I said, if we don't have this going in margin from the very beginning, oh, there's your problem, there's your problem, here's your problem, there's your problem. Absolutely, we did all that. But the most important thing you do is bring people with you. I'm so glad you shared that. That's definitely a really important lesson in in change management. And obviously, no easy task. So thank you for for sharing that with us and, and the people listening. I'd love to know, you have a lot of experience marketing with two parents and kids. What are some lessons you can share with us on how to effectively market to parents and kids? And some things you did with Build-A-Bear. I'll start with the most important answer, which is an answer that's true for all consumer communications and marketing is... And I think in a growing way, it has to come from a place of authenticity, particularly when you're talking about parents and kids. But is it on brand for you? Does it make sense? Are you meeting a need? What's your value proposition? All of those things, all of that stuff that I actually learned all the way back in a DDB Needham training program, <laughs> that stuff still works. You know, you can't forget your fundamentals. But when you talk about the parents and kids piece, there have been a few times in my life where it's really important that that intersection has a value proposition for both sides. That's 
in some cases, particularly in the toy industry or even a children's footwear industry, that's the holy grail when it's something that the kids love and the moms and dads or caregivers see value in as well. And how do you communicate that intersection in a way that's meaningful to both parties? Because they're a gatekeeper, right? I mean, they're still the ones with the money. And you could try to win on the nag factor side, or you could try, you know, with more of a frequency kid-focused message, or you could try to, to like, communicate effectively on the both sides, on how it's a both win. And that's what we do at Build-A-Bear, right? So a lot of times it's not just about going directly to the, ch- to the child. And in fact, that's really hard to do today, the way the marketing world and the advertising world has evolved. That old model of I'm going to buy X amount of television in the upfront on Nickelodeon and get the job done and do my math. And I know exactly how many, what my reaching frequency is, what my GRPs are going to be, and I'm going to translate that into X amount of sales. That model just doesn't exist anymore. So you have to find a lot of different ways to communicate with kids in different creative modes. But when you have a brand that has a, a beloved memory for the parent, as well as you're still servicing an important need for the child, which we do, both psychologically as well as, you know, their furry friends and when they go to sleep with, when you can, again, being of service to the parent and the child wants it, that's really what we have to do. Build-A-Bear's in this super special place of, we just have to tell the truth. (laughs) Yay. Um, Wait, no, it's the amplification of, make this memory with your family and your child gets this special furry friend. And oh, by the way, these teddy bears are proven to be really valued companions in the psychological development of children. And having that teddy bear will help you help them stay in the bed and go back to sleep at night. That teddy bear will help. It's true. I I can say mama three. I'm speaking (laughs) from from personal experience here. And now we have, you know, proof where um, teddy bears will uh, enable kids to have more confidence when they're learning how to read. So they read to their stuffed animal instead of it because reading out loud is so important and they're really trepidatious about reading out loud to other people. So there's just so many needs that we fulfill and they, the magic of that moment of even watching parents, one, see their child stuff that bear and it come alive. And then them being able to watch their, their child or their grandchild or go through the process. What's funny, for real, we have to train our bear builders, which are the people inside, to kind of coach the caregiver to stay out of it. Like, they, they will try to, well, well, since you got, you know, the princess bear, you should put this princess outfit on it. And the parents want to follow the rule. Like they want to do the obvious thing. And the kid's like, like looking at them. And so the bear builder's kind of watching this and they'll, they'll literally pull aside an adult and say, let's see what she does. Let's see where he goes with this. Let's, you know, if you want to put, you know, a hot dog outfit on a dragon, it's okay. And build a bear, let it go. Don't try to narrow down what they're trying to do. And so we're servicing in so many ways. It's just, it's really, it just fills my heart. 
What platforms and channels have you been finding the most success with? And how frequently are you pivoting your marketing strategy and social media strategy based on all the new things that seem to pop up every other day? (laughs) Well, we now appeal to so many consumer groups for so many purposes. So to be clear, 40% of our sales are to teens and adults now. And that's a lot of that has to do with our, what we would call, you know, trend product, hot media product like this, this, this guy got have this little fella right here. He's an oxalotl. He's like a TikTok darling. And then we have all these crazy, you know, licensed mashups that we do that are adult driven. And even though you might think like Hello Kitty is like kid, no, that's big portion of the sales of all these, or, uh, these licenses go, go to teens and adults. So that whole strategy is one strategy. Usually what we're doing there, maybe there's an influencer involved where, uh, you know, sometimes it's a voluntary influencer, you know, just UTC. I mean, that goes viral and goes crazy. And so we're managing that and amplifying that and watching that. And we're in it all day long. We're watching our feeds. We're pushing stuff. We've got all kinds of people doing that. And then there's the kids side of the equation, which is a different kind of licensing, like maybe a Paw Patrol or maybe a this or that. So there's some more traditional kinds of marketing, but you go where the kids' eyeballs are, which is now YouTube and sometimes TikTok. And, but that's the shifts of the viewership have been so dramatic. And, you know, you, you just have to manage that. And because of this broad array of both products, consumers, and reasons, which is gifting, collectibles, birthdays, you know, all sorts of other occasions. Now we're coming up on holidays. Our, our, you know, Halloween stuff is selling out and it's, that's also adult and kid. It makes for, we have to be really, really efficient and very smart in how we do that because nobody has, you know, the coffers that deep to do, you know, really, really broad reach stuff in a very, very deep way. So we have to nail it every time. Are you working with any agencies or is everything done in-house? Oh God, we could not possibly do this on our own. We are so (laughs) blessed to have some really creative partners who love Build-A-Bear as much as we do. So I mean, I always like to think that they're probably giving us a little more than we're paying for because it's, I mean, I think they just think about Build-A-Bear all the time. It's literally like middle of the night. Oh my God, just thought of this. We'll call these people. We'll call these people. People just, people really just come out of the woodwork for Build-A-Bear because I, I think they love it so much. I mean, just including, you know, movie stars and, and influencers and things like that. I think that they, they like the idea of being associated with Build-A-Bear one, but they also just genuinely want to amplify the brand. But lots of fun, creative ideas. And now I think you know, what we've done, this was one of that those early unlock ideas, is Build-A-Bear, 250 million Build-A-Bears later, our furry friends later, from 25 years of making uh, these bears for people across the globe. That's 250 million stories. We're a storytelling company. And we wanted to pivot in, in, into entertainment. That was one of the, the big ideas when you think about, you know, sort of my Hasbro background, it would make sense to people. I was, you know, running the Transformers brand when the first Transformers film came out. So this is you know, not new territory. But we started to create our own sub-brands and intellectual property so we could have story arcs and character arcs that we had intended to turn into content at some point. And so we ended up 
making the Honey Girls movie and now our Mary Mission film is coming out uh, later this year. And the reason I'm mentioning that is back in the day, you make this commercial and that's your content. You play, you pay for your distribution, really, which would be your advertising dollars. The content creation is now a huge unlock in the whole media and marketing infrastructure, right? You have to just, you, you get that as a tentpole element that you can keep integrating, elevating, integrating, elevating. And it creates a lot of synergy around both the products that are associated with the film or the characters that are associated with the content. And also, you know, the, the, you link it to the store and use that as a way to connect across numerous channels with numerous consumers. Coming up, you're about to hear how Sharon's journey completely changed when the world shut down. What is the craziest thing that's happened to you since running the business? I'll put both crazy good and crazy bad in there and stir it up. And it's got to be uh, shutting our entire retail system down in a 24-hour, 48-hour period because of COVID. I've never. You, you just, that's just not, you just can't even believe you're getting that call. What did you do? How did you manage it? Well, nobody has a playbook for that. Yeah. <laughs> Unless you're like a doomsdayist. I mean, like who who sits around and writes up the book, you know, let's go to chapter 13, you know, or whatever. And oh, how to shut down all your stores in 48 hours. Nobody has that. Well, um, now you could actually write your second book because now you've experienced that. Oh my gosh. I mean, we just did not plan for that. But in those situations of just significant crisis, the very best thing that you can have is a fabulous trusted team, the end, that care for each other with a lot of strategic, you know, heartfelt, I know you got this. I know you've got this. I know you've got, because you can't just keep vetting things. You've, you had, it was moving so quickly that you had to believe that we were all fundamentally aligned on the right balance of people, process, you know, the financials, stakeholder value on the decisions that needed to be made at a rapid fire way. And, and then we would just report back out. And every morning we would be on these calls, sometimes 7 a.m., because it's all over in multiple time zones. And we would call them the COVID calls. These are Sunday morning, Saturday morning, every morning. What happened? What did you do? How did we do? How, you know, legal issues. I mean, just physical issues. It was just crazy. And there was this one where I get on the phone, we're not having another COVID call. And they're like, what are you, lost your mind? We can just stop it. We can't, we can't stop, you know? And I'm like, no, no, we're going to have a call. We're just not going to have a COVID call. We're going to call it a success call because I'm sick of this. I'm sick of us thinking about it, structuring it, framing it is trying to move against the negative. It is absolutely time for us to pivot and say, all right, yay, what would we do with the luxury of all of our stores being closed down for the first time? (laughs) What's all that long list of stuff that we never get to because we're busy running stores? And everybody kind of just went quiet. And I'm like, you know, like you're on the teams, maybe you're like, did I lose everybody? Are we all frozen? 
And then when my, actually my COO spoke up and he's like, yeah, what if? And in all, we just started brainstorming. Oh my goodness. We could finally put all this buy online, ship from store stuff in place that we just never can get to because the warehouse is so busy. We can't stop the process to put to implement it. Oh my gosh, we could do this. Oh my gosh, we could do that. And it just, this long, long list of stuff started coming out. And one of my um, IT guys, long, a long-term guy, after this was all over, said that he believes that we pulled forward three years worth of stuff in about a six-month time period. And that's, but isn't that the perfect example on a mega scale of exactly the kind of things we were talking about when we first, you know, started this discussion? So, look, you'll never get me to say or write that COVID was good for anyone. Like, it was a terrible thing. People are still suffering with it. But it's really a great sort of, I think, existential question to, of saying, under almost any and all circumstances, it's just the discipline of taking a moment and flipping it on its head and what value that could be possibly derived from that. And that's what we did. It's not that we then ignored it or that we didn't think that was happening. We didn't manage around it and we didn't have rules around it. We didn't follow policy. Of course, we did all of those things. But we also unlocked some value that we had henceforth not seen. That was so well said. And I love that in the face of a challenge, especially a huge challenge like COVID, you reframed it to your team. I think as leaders, we all have a really hard, hard job. You have to be strong, especially when times get really tough. And I love that that question that you asked your team. I think everyone listening, especially myself, will start to approach challenges a little bit differently. So thank you so much for sharing that. I was just going to say the other thing that we did that was, this is really fast, but it's actually a critical, the other side of the coin. When we communicated out to the remaining portion of the organization, because we had to furlough 90% of our organization, mind you, but that remaining 10%, the brave 10%, (laughs) or or actually everyone was brave involved in this, but we were as open and honest and transparent as we could be, inclusive of saying straight up, I don't know. I honestly don't know. We don't know. We don't know what next month's going to be, what next week, we know what our run rate is. And here's what I can promise you. We have mapped out a path. It's not going to be an easy path, pretty narrow path. And a few little miracles have to happen. But we have a path and I need you to believe that because it's true and I won't lie to you. And I think that's what stuck, what, what allowed us to hang together. That, no, but thank you for sharing that. Definitely. I'm just thinking back to when we were faced with that same challenge and all of the different things that we said and did. And it's remarkable how we got through it and we're stronger for it. I want to know more about your book and what made you write a book. And you've, you've had it as the background this whole time. So I'd love to talk about your book. Thank you. I don't know. I think... It's just sort of this cum, sort of this accumulation of things where you know, a lot of times I, I do podcasts or I'm you know speaking at events or sometimes just telling stories to a group of people and they're like, oh my god, you should write a book, you know. And then in the first few times, you know, you're like, yeah, right, whatever. 
people, everybody says that, you know, <laughs> that after a while you really start, you're like, well, if this many people are saying it, you know, maybe there's some truth to it. And so you just start in the back of your mind, slowly jotting down, oh, if, if I ever wrote a book, if that ever, you know, I, I would put this in it or this in it or this in it. And you start to kind of create this structure. And then when I got serious about it, I'm like, well, I want something super different. I don't want um, to be narrative of my life. I'm not, I'm nowhere near ready to write something like that. I want it to be something where I think that they're implying when, when, because it's the, it was the environment within which I was speaking. It's something that struck them, that helped them. And then I had people come back and say, you know, that thing that you said about such and such, I then went back to my boss and I said, such and such, and it changed, you know, and I got that job. Oh my God, thank you. And I'm like, oh, wow, people don't know this stuff. And then there was this moment, this crazy moment where I was asked, this sounds so self-serving, apologies, but Columbia invited me to come get an award. And then the University of Tennessee was giving, was also going to give me an award. And I'm like, okay, fine. But it was on the same day, the exact same day. So the Columbia thing was a luncheon and the UT one was a dinner. And I'm like, and my admin's trying to figure out how to do this. And we're sitting in my office and my CFO happens to be in there. And she busted. She's like, I just can't get you there. It's not going to happen. You're going to have to pick one. You know? And she's really sweet. But she's like, this is just crazy. And I said, it doesn't matter. I mean, it doesn't matter. You, you pick and we'll just work it out. Uh, because, I mean, it's not like, you know, it's not like it's going to change my life or anything. You know, something like that. And my CFO just got, he got mad at me. He like stopped the meeting and he turned to my, my administrative assistant and he said, you figure this out. You will get her to both of those presentations. If we need to get a private jet, that's what we're going to do because it's not about Sharon's life. And he turned to me, he goes, it's not going to change your life. You're right. But you might change someone's life. And I'm like, dang it. (laughs) I know. And then there's something, a whole thing, the whole universe shifted on the thing that you learn the minute you have your first kid, then you relearn it when you have your second kid, then you relearn it when you have your third. It's not about you. It's never about you. And as long as you think it's about you, you're missing the whole thing, right? And the joy that comes when you truly embrace that you you're meant to be a conduit. You're meant to be a giver. You're meant to be, look at it this way. How lucky are we that we stood on the shoulders of some incredible women, including the founder of this company. And that is my job to then, if you can't, shoulders, shoulders. I mean, I'll get down on my hands and knees and you can climb up on my back. I mean, we have to keep this moving. And I'm like, oh my gosh. What And then so literally flying back from that event and there's beautiful clouds and all this stuff up in the sky. I'm like kind of all verklempt and there's all these people that had stood in line to talk to me. I'm like, I would have probably wanted to talk to me when I was their age. If I didn't know like who I was and somebody said, you know, just add up the, the this and this and this, the resume, whatever, I'd be like, oh my God, you know, like, but you just don't bring that with you. And if I did, I, I wouldn't be a nice person. But that realization of maybe you do have something to share and to get out of your own way 
and just say it with authenticity and honesty and no attitude and tell the truth and tell the ugly, the up and down. Because if you don't tell it like that, you're telling a story that's unattainable, which is the exact polar opposite of what I mean by it's not about you. I had to go on that journey. And when I got through the other end of that journey, that book poured out of me like nobody's business. And I don't even think I really wrote it. I don't even know what happened there. It was like otherworldly because I ended up in this, I got this structure down where it could be in little bites. There's always a quote. It's a loose arc of my life, but it's not a life story. It starts with just learning life lessons from climbing a tree and planning and failing and, and learning to just get up and do it again. How you figure out that it's not what happens, it's how you define that it, what happens is does not define your life. What happens is the definition you wrap around the events in your life, the stories that you're telling yourself. And you can create any narrative you want. You can even recreate narratives of things that have happened if they're not serving you because it's all made up anyway. That data is overwhelming that between 60 and 80% of what we think happened and the stuff that we remember didn't even happen. So why don't you make up a story that's empowering? And that's why it's called Stories in Heart. And so it tells a story. It wraps it all back around. It has a question from the heart. It gives you a lot of these little like tricks and things that I did that somehow worked for me. They might not work for you, but they might. Who knows? And I even, you know, give you sort of like an outline of how to create your own, you know, your values by using your name. And because you got to know what, you know, what do you stand for? If you don't stand for something, you don't stand for anything. So in that particular case, as an example, and this goes back to, I needed to write this book. It causes you to, those values help you make decisions faster. You don't wait, you know, you don't sit there and ruminate. If it's not about excellence, I'm not going to do it. If it's not an intelligent choice, I'm not going to do it. If it doesn't involve creativity, I'm not going to do it. If, you know, like all of those things. And in this particular case, this, this was, it was a bar that I needed to rise to, to be true to my values. So that was a long answer that may not have been helpful. Wait a second. That was so helpful. Don't put yourself down saying that. Everything you just shared, I'm like sitting here nodding and tearing and just, I'm so glad you wrote that book. And for everyone listening right now, we will, we're linking out to that right now in the show notes below. As soon as we finish this recording, I'm going to order it. I'm so excited to hear more of your stories. I know we just got almost an hour of that, but I'm sure there's some more inside the book as well. And I have just so enjoyed this conversation with you, Sharon. You have, you're just a true authentic leader and giver and want to help others and are making impact. And I've never felt like speechless at the end of a recording of an episode. Like I feel like, oh my gosh, like I just want to give you a hug. I wish you were closer. <laughs> Not on a hugging. <laughs> so Sharon, Yay, thank you. <laughs> yes, of the build a bear heart. Sharon, where can everyone find you, follow you for those that are interested in buying your book or building a build a bear? Where should they head over to do so? And we'll link out to everything. It's really easy. Buildabear.com. You can find a store, plan a party, buy a bear, go through the process, personalize it, have a blast. And then storiesandheart.com. Or you can get the book on Amazon. It's everywhere. And oh, and thank you, thank you for all the people who have reviewed the book. They're just if ever I need a boost, I go back and read my own reviews. <laughs> it's like, oh my God. 
<laughs> All right. So go tap the link, order Sharon's book, and don't forget to give it a review as well. Thank you again, Sharon, for being here. I'm Stephanie. I'm Courtney. And this is the best business meeting we've ever had. Hey, thanks for listening and leaving us a five-star review. We'd really appreciate it. And we'd love to stay in touch with each of you. You can listen to all of our latest episodes at entreprenista.com and connect with us on Instagram at entreprenistas. We'd also love to invite you to join the Entreprenista League, our private membership community for trailblazing women. You can head over to entreprenista.com forward slash the league. We'll see you there. Wishing you a productive week ahead. Oh,